Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Legends of Surgery. You may be noticing that you're not hearing uh, Dr. Rouse's dulcet tones and that's because I'm David Sigmund, the new host and assisting him uh, with the Legends of Surgery podcast. Uh, you may remember Dr. Rouse introducing me as a contributor when I wrote my first episode, The History of the Adrenals. Uh, I'm a surgical resident at the University of Illinois in Chicago, but I'm currently doing research in surgical education at the University of Pennsylvania in sunny Philadelphia. I'm a longtime listener to the Legends of Surgery podcast, uh, but I'm taking a turn in front of the mic this time around. Uh, so I hope I can live up to everyone's lofty expectations. Uh, as always, thank you to everyone for your support, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Today we'll be having a Halloween special episode on Dr. Shiro Ishii and Japan's infamous Unit 731. I must warn our listeners that this will be a graphic episode, including vivisections, torture of prisoners, intentional infections with terrible diseases, and ultimately an ending worthy of the darkest slasher film where the monster survives at the end. Let's dive in. Dr. Ishii was born in 1892 in the Shibayama, Japan, the fourth son of a sake maker, and eventually came to study medicine at Kyoto Imperial University, demonstrating a particular interest in microbiology. A little bit of foreshadowing there. After graduation, he was commissioned as an officer in the army as a surgeon in 1921. The next year, he was assigned to the 1st Army Hospital in Tokyo, where his work impressed his senior officers enough that he was allowed to go back to Kyoto Imperial University for further postgraduate training, again focusing on microbiology. In true evil villain style, Dr. Ishii referred to his bacteria as pets and would grow them not only for experiments, but also as companions he would check on while performing his other experiments. In 1925, Ishii finished his studies and was promoted to major. In 1927, he began advocating for Japan to develop a biological warfare research program to counterbalance the programs in other countries around the world. In 1928, he took a two-year tour of Western countries to research the effects of chemical and biological warfare from World War I on. His tours included quite an extensive list of countries, including Singapore, Ceylon, Egypt, Greece, Turkey, Italy, France, Switzerland, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Belgium, Holland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Canada, the United States, and the USSR. Upon his return to Japan, his advocacy to develop a biological warfare capabilities for his country only increased, and he found a ready listener in, and excuse my pronunciation here, Colonel Chikahiko Koizumi, who pushed for Ishii's ideas to be adopted within the army. Koizumi also became the health minister of Japan from 1941 to 1945, which gave Ishii access to the highest levels of the Japanese government to secure support for his ghoulish research. With the military agreeing to support Ishii's research into biological and chemical weapons, he began experiment, human, human experimentation in 1932 at the secretive Zongma Fortress, a prisoner camp in Japanese-occupied Manchuria that is part of China. While Ishii euphemistically named his lab the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory, and ostensibly its purpose was to research methods and how to stop diseases spreading among Japanese troops. While it did do some research into epidemic prevention, its primary focus was actually in discovering the most effective ways to spread disease among the enemies of Japan. Ishii based his lab in China because he said human tech subjects could be plucked from the streets like rats there. His first round of experiments consisted of horrors such as draining prisoners of their blood slowly over several days, intentionally withholding specific nutrients or water to see how their bodies reacted, and intentionally infecting patients with microbes, including the plague. 
There's at least one recorded incident of a patient who developed a 40 centigrade fever who was vivisected, that is dissected alive, after he passed out. The average life expectancy at the camp was only one month, and prisoners that somehow survived the cruel experiments but were too, work, too weak to work or for further tests were summarily executed. In 1934, a group of about 40 prisoners made an escape attempt, and while only 16 made it out of the facility without being killed or recaptured, those survivors began to spread stories far and wide of the human experimentation going on at the fortress. Due to this publicity, the camp was closed and destroyed to hide its secrets, with many of the remaining prisoners being immediately executed. Ishii then took his work to a different facility called Pingfan, where the infamous Unit 731 would be created, and the extent of Dr. Ishii's nightmarish vision would truly take off. Unit 731 was founded in 1935 and continued its work until the end of World War II in 1945. Its officially declared work continued to be prevention of epidemics among Japanese troops, once again being given a euphemistic name, the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kwantung Army. It's worth mentioning here that while Unit 731 is the most infamous of Japan's biological and chemical weapons research groups, there were several others, including Unit 1855 in Beijing, Unit 1644 in Nanjing, Unit 8604 in Guangzhou, and Unit 9420 in Singapore. Ishii was the director of all these units and commanded over 10,000 people in 1938 when his uh, units were at their largest sizes. Ishii used the funding and the size of his unit to attract top-notch medical talent, but many of those Ishii recruited were attracted for the chance to perform human experimentation that they knew could simply not be performed anywhere else. Thus began Ishii and Unit 731's descent into the greatest depths of cruelty. Their operations were codenamed Maruta, which is Japanese for logs. The start is a bit of an inside joke, quite macabre, as the prison staff told local communities that the primary purpose of the work camp was to be a lumberman. This then evolved into a euphemism for the human experimentation subjects with memos discussing things like how many logs fell today and so forth uh, when discussing prisoner experimentation. Members of Unit 731 even published over 100 papers on their research in peer-reviewed publications saying it had actually been done on quote-unquote Manchurian monkeys or long-tailed monkeys which was, again, is just a euphemism for human experimentation. Uh, the experiments were conducted on essentially anyone that could be unfortunate to be sent to one of these camps controlled by Ishii, and included everyone from run-of-the-mill criminals to political prisoners, those expressing anti-Japanese sentiments, the homeless, and the handicapped. No portion of the population was exempt from being experimented on, including the elderly, pregnant women, children, and even infants. I'm about to start discussing the experiments performed by Unit 731, so I want to repeat my earlier warning to any listeners with sensitive stomachs to either stop or steal themselves at this point, because the rest of the podcast is pretty grotesque. Let's start with the most basic of weapons, or excuse me, the most basic of experiments performed by Unit 731, weapons testing. Prisoners would be herded into small enclosed spaces, and soldiers would then attack the unarmed group using everything from machine guns to flamethrowers to hand grenades. Sometimes prisoners were tied to stakes, and shot or stabbed with bayonets or knives. The prisoners would then be examined and often dissected to examine the pattern of injuries to help determine new ways to make weapons more deadly. Unit 731 also performed frostbite and hypothermia experiments, where they took prisoners outside during winter and submerged various limbs into freezing water for extended periods of time. One Japanese officer had this to say about the process. The frozen arms, when struck with a short stick, emitted a sound resembling that a boar gives when it is struck. 
and that's how they would determine whether or not a prisoner's limbs were appropriately frozen for their experiments. The frozen limbs would then be exposed to various methods of rewarming, such as direct exposure to flame, doused in hot water, or left frozen to examine the effects the various methods had on limb and tissue loss. In order to examine the progression of syphilis and other venereal diseases that have always been a problem for armies in foreign lands, Unit 731 would purposely infect prisoners with the disease, including children and pregnant women. They would then often vivisect the prisoner at different stages of disease progression to examine how it uh, went forward, including the way syphilis crossed placenta to infect the fetus in utero, meaning that they were dissecting pregnant women they had intentionally infected as well. A number of other horrific experiments were performed, including putting prisoners into bariatric chambers and then putting them in extreme highs or lows of pressure until their eyeballs would burst, burning prisoners to examine the relationship between tissue damage and temperature, experimenting on how human tissue reacted to electrocution at different voltages, placing prisoners in centrifuges and seeing how many Gs they could tolerate. They found that most adults died between 10 to 15, but that children generally died at lower levels. They exposed prisoners to high levels of X-ray radiation to examine its effect on sterilization and also the radiation burns that occurred in sensitive tissues. Limbs from prisoners were amputated to see how quickly the patient died from blood loss or locked in gas chambers to test new weapons. Many experiments had no clear purpose at all beyond wanton cruelty, such as injecting prisoners with horse urine or seawater and grafting amputated limbs onto random non-anatomical equivocations just to see what happened. Unit 731 dissected many of their victims while they were still alive and without anesthesia because they were concerned death or anesthesia would contaminate their research results. A medical orderly who was a member of Unit 731 was interviewed by the New York Times in his 70s and recalled his first vivisection saying, The fellow knew that it was over for him, so he didn't struggle when they let him into the room and tied him down. But when I picked up the scalpel, that's when he began screaming. I cut him open from chest to the stomach and he screamed terribly. His face was all twisted in agony. He made this unimaginable sound he was screaming so horribly. But then finally he stopped. This was all in a day's work for the surgeons, but it really left an impression on me because it was my first time. Or another quote from a Dr. Ken Yuasa, a former Unit 731 surgeon, said, I cut with strength. It was soft inside and I could not find the organ, so I cut again, put my hand inside, and that's how I found it. Then I moved on to the trachea. The person used for the experiment was still laughing when I cut the neck and blood gushed out. I can still remember everything clearly. But what Unit 731 and its sister units are most known for are their experiments on unsuspecting civilian populations with biological weapons. They bred bubonic plague-infected fleas in their laboratories and then dropped them onto coastal Chinese cities in the Hunan province in 1940 and 1941. These led to widespread bubonic plague outbreaks in the area, killing tens of thousands of people. Another experiment involved spreading typhoid and paratyphoid into the wells of Nanking, as well as giving out contaminated food to the starving population of the city. The Japanese researchers were thrilled when large outbreaks occurred with their research finding paratyphoid to be the most effective of their biological agents. In total, at least 12 of these large tests targeting at least 11 different Chinese cities, occurred killing an estimated 400,000 Chinese civilians in total. The agents used included the already mentioned plague, as well as cholera, smallpox, botulism, typhoid, and tularemia. Unit 731 was so reckless regarding human life that they killed 1,700 of their own soldiers in an attack on the Chinese city of Chengda in 1941 with cholera. 
They actually had even planned an attack using these same tactics uh, with kamikaze planes containing bubonic plague infected fleas and they planned to launch this attack against San Diego in 1945 uh, to attack the naval base there but luckily Japan surrendered before that could come to fruition. Let's all take a minute to catch our breaths and process the depth of humanity we just heard. The next part of the story lacks gruesome details of what we just heard but is even more terrifying in my humble opinion. With the war coming to a close and Soviet forces tearing through the Japanese-occupied portions of China, Unit 731 realized they needed to destroy the evidence of their crime. Chinese forces had investigated Japanese biological um, attacks and released their findings to the world as early as 1941, but had mostly been ignored, and Ishii wanted to keep his work under wraps. The remaining prisoners of the camps were gassed, poisoned, or shot before being incinerated or buried in mass graves. The test facilities were then blown up to further destroy the evidence shortly before the Japanese surrender to the U.S. in 1945. After Japan's surrender, U.S. forces moved in to occupy China. One of the occupying forces was a Lieutenant Colonel Murray Sanders, a noted microbiologist who uncovered Unit 731's nefarious deeds when going through Japan military paperwork. Sanders took his information to General Douglas MacArthur, who was a supreme commander of Allied forces in the Pacific and Japan's de facto leader after its surrender. Once MacArthur was aware of the horror that Unit 731 had perpetrated, he promptly offered all the doctors of 731 immunity from punishment for their crimes if they shared the data from their experiments with the U.S. and no one else. The Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, the Pacific equivalent of the Nuremberg Trials, investigated only one incident of Japanese experiments with quote-unquote poisonous serums, and dismissed the charges due to insufficient evidence. Meanwhile, those members of Unit 731 that were captured by the Soviets were taken to trial in 1949, with 12 members, some ranging from laboratory orderies all the way up to the chief medical officer, as well as the commanding general of Japanese forces in Manchuria. They were given sentences ranging from 2 to 25 years in a Siberian labor camp, although many were released early possibly due in part to them giving some of their research in exchange to the Soviets. Both the Soviets and the Americans accused each other of covering up Unit 731's atrocities and using the results of their work to develop their own biological warfare programs. These accusations were true for both sides, although both sides claimed they would never do such a thing and it was either communist or capitalist propaganda respectively. Many of the physicians of Unit 731 and its sister units would continue to perform medical research in post-war Japan, and do so using their typical lack of concern for any sort of medical ethics. One, Dr. Masami Kedaoka, infected Japanese prisoners and mentally handicapped individuals with Resetia or typhus from 1947 to 1956. Former members of Unit 731 also worked with the U.S. Army's Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, which investigated people who had been present at but survived the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs. These people are referred to as the Hibakusha, which is Japanese for explosion-affected people, and they were discriminated against at the time as people feared there might be contagious effects from these new nuclear weapons. The former members of Unit 731 treated these people with their customary wonderful bedside manner by taking blood and tissue samples without permission or after coercing their patients with threats against them or their family. They primarily observed people to see the long-term effects of exposure to nuclear weapons rather than having any concern for treating them well and generally viewed these individuals as guinea pigs. When the post-war Japan uh, eventually developed their own National Institute of Health, at least half of its members had spent some time uh, with Unit 731 or one of its sister units. Finally, let's go back to our old friend, Dr. Shiro Ishii. 
He was granted immunity by the United States with General MacArthur saying, additional data, possibly some statements from Ishii, can be obtained by informing Japanese involved that the information will be retained in intelligence channels and will not be employed as war crimes evidence. And the chief at Fort Detrick, which is where the United States Biological Warfare Program was located from 1943 to 1969, said, the information Ishii gathered was absolutely invaluable, could never have been obtained in the United States because of scruples attached to human experimentation, and was obtained fairly cheaply. Those are all direct quotes. Ishii faded into obscurity after being granted immunity, and his exact location after the war is not clear. Some reports say he moved to Maryland and worked with the United States military on biological weapons. Others say he stayed in Japan and opened a small clinic. His only definitively known appearance prior to his death was in Japan in August 1958, where he delivered a farewell speech to a gathering of former 731 members. He died in 1959 from laryngeal cancer, and his funeral was led by his second-in-command of Unit 731. Ishii is entombed in the Yasukuni Shrine, which is Japan's military burial shrine, the equivalent of uh, Arlington Cemetery here in the United States. The Yasukuni Shrine is a very controversial place because it includes 1,068 individuals convicted of war crimes, and also Ishii, who we must remember was never convicted or even tried for any of his crimes. Uh, these war crime members being entombed at the shrine has led several other nations that suffered under Japan during World War II to say that Japan is glorifying these individuals as well as their crimes. It was not until August of 2002 that a Japanese court ruled for the first time that Japan had engaged in biological warfare in World War II, uh, but the same court rejected any claims of compensation to the victims, saying that the issue had already been settled by various international peace agreements. In 2003, in response to an inquiry by the House of Representatives of Japan about Unit 731, the Japanese Prime Minister said the Japanese government had no remaining records of Unit 731, but would publish any records that were discovered in the future publicly. In 2018, the National Archives of Japan released the name of uh, 3,607 members of Unit 731. While Japan has apologized for its actions in World War II in general, there has been no formal apology for the actions of Unit 731 to date. It's important to note that Japan is not alone in having surgeons perform horribly unethical experiments. The German atrocities of World War II need no mentioning. But the Tuskegee syphilis trials by the United States from the 1930s to the 1970s, or the Swedish Vipholm experiments where they fed mentally disabled patients large amounts of candy to study the development of dental caries, are examples of how easily people can be viewed as guinea pigs rather than humans by medical professionals. Surgeons and medical practitioners of all stripes must be vigilant about strict adherence to ethics, and these lessons from the past should never be forgotten. Well, that wraps up this episode of Legends of Surgery. Thank you very much for bearing with me through my first time, uh, and I hope this episode won't give anyone too many nightmares, uh, but that we also remember this as a cautionary tale for our entire profession. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow us on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thank you for listening.